This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters. Here, racing into January 2022, and it's been a good break for many, good break for some, but the news in real estate never stops. I'm going to summarise a few of the things that have been happening in the last month or so, just with regards to things happening around uh, Palmerston North, Manawatu, Wagadui, and then the market in general. The first article which came out just prior to the new year was that the council's interest in social housing grows as demand increases. So councils around the region are responding to a growing housing crisis by putting their own coffers on the line. At least 59 homes may be built across the region in the next few years for those on low incomes. But Palmas North alone has a wait list of 400 people. The Manawatu District Council has agreed to ring-fence $2 million to develop community housing at its December 18th meeting. Council Communications Officer Ben Caldwell said that did not necessarily mean it would happen, but if it is something that the Council wishes to do, then it's prudent for us to have a figure as a starting point. The recommendation came from Council staff. The existing 205 Council flats for the elderly and disabled were managed by the Manawatu Community Trust. In a report presented to the Council, it was suggested that new housing development could also assist community members on lower incomes, including first-home buyers. And earlier this year, Palmerston North City Council doubled its housing budget, that is the social housing budget, to $14 million. Between 2020 and 2021, it built 28 new units, with seven planned for 2022. At the time, Councillor Lorna Johnston said the city had a wait list of 400 people for community housing and that the existing 407 units did not experience a quick turnover. Over the year, there have been conversations about housing density with then-acting city planning manager Michael Duendam telling stuff in March that the city would need to build up rather than out with land stock being harder to find. However, Despite the Manawatu Wanganui region regularly appearing in the top three regions with growing house prices, Palmerston North is excluded from the new law that permits three-storied residential buildings without the need to apply for consent. Now the news, this article on stuff by Janine Rankin in early January, Palmerston North has homes for three quarters of the national average. So the average house values in Palmerston North has ticked up over $750,000 and that's up 29% in a year. The figures were released by CoreLogic recently and they show the rate of increase is slowing with just a 3.1% increase in the three months to the end of December and 1.2% in December. CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall said it had been a truly remarkable year for the property market with a record national growth rate of 27.6%, slightly behind the Palmerston North performance. So the average value of a New Zealand home tipped over that $1 million mark for the first time, and that put New Zealand's three-quarters of a million average price tag in the middle of the pack. Wanganui houses were an average 570000 and the district recorded a 37% annual increase. It's an incredible return on investment. Only Hastings had a higher annual growth rate of 37.4%. The 
The highest average house price around the country is Auckland at 1.4 million and the lowest average Invercargill at just under half a million. There are some other places where homes were cheaper than Palmerston North, such as Christchurch and Dunedin, Rotorua, Gisborne and New Plymouth. So I've really moved up there in terms of uh, pricings. This article also from early January says that the complaint over Kiwi Rail Freight Hub inaccuracies are given the short shrift. A complaint about what a person says is an attempt to mislead people over a new rail hub in Manawatu and that's been shunted off the yard by the advertising watchdog. In a ruling published in December, the Advertising Standards Authority declined to consider a complaint against material created by Kiwi Rail in relation to its proposed regional freight hub. Kiwi Rail wants to designate 177 hectares of industrial and rural land to the northeast of Palmerston North for the hub, which would replace the 20 hectare yard on Tremaine Avenue. It's approximately eight times the size. It was granted $40 million from the Provincial Growth Fund for the project and had a hearing in 2021 about the designation with a decision yet to be released. There are various issues still to be resolved, including partnerships with Iwi and how long Kiwi Rail should be given to start work. A complaint was made to the authority about the information Kiwi Rail had published. The complaint gave the authority a double-sided flyer showing a mapped diagram of the proposed site. The flyer indicated stylized images of the new hub in action and an invitation to give feedback. The complainant also had issues with the project's page on the Kiwi Rail's website, which lists the rationale, alleged benefits and progress on the project. They suggested the material was misleading, contained inaccuracies, subjective claims and ambiguities. The expectation is that Kiwi Rail would advertise its intentions with a high level of integrity and transparency. They said Kiwi Rail was issuing hyped-up media releases based on the information which created issues with trust in the local community. So the complainee there wanted to make a formal complaint that the highly adversarial and distorted representation of facts circulated by Kiwi Rail in favour of the proposal are highly misleading. The authority acknowledged the complaints and concerns that the material was not an advertisement. The material formed the basis of planning documents for the hub and was used to communicate information about the hub's design, the designation process and other such issues. So there we go, that's... uh, a little bit of an update there. Now, some of you may recall that late last year there was a fire in the former High Flyers building in Palmerston North. So this news, about a week ago, on Stuff by Jimmy, Jimmy Ellingham, says Heritage-listed High Flyers building in Palmerston North looks set for development. So there are renewed hopes a long-awaited new development could return a Palmerston North inner city eyesore to its former glory. The formal central post office, where my father used to work in the day, was known to many as the High Flyers building named after the bar, but has been crumbling for the past five years since the last tenant moved out. The Edwardian heritage-listed two-storied structure was further damaged in a fire in October, but its parlour state has long rankled city residents. It's a shame it looks the way it does, being right in the middle of the town there, right on the square. So in recent years, the plans to develop it as a bus shelter, a retail space, conference venue and a hotel have come to nothing. Palmerston North's top five most vexing eyesores, based on feedback from readers, uh, included this on the list. However, City Mayor Grant Smith has confirmed uh, to Radio New Zealand that the building is subject to a sale and purchase agreement. 
He said confidentiality arrangements meant he could not disclose who was the buyer nor particulars of the planned development. Because developing a heritage building is quite a long-term project. Smith said it takes the right owner and a bit of bravery to do this. The Smith said officials had issued a dangerous building notice for the earthquake-prone structure, but it was frustrating watching it decay without being able to do more. Smith says in Europe, if you have a vacant building for a number of years, the owners basically slapped the notice, which means your rates are tripled or you have to make some effort to get your building into good order. Letting a building decay because it's out of sight and out of mind is somewhat silly, really. You should be trying to maximise your investment. Smith said, although the facade had heritage protection, the rest of the building was probably beyond repair. So there's areas in the country, um, the Nelson Post building, the old DIC building, which is now the public library here in Palmas North, where they can still keep a facade and make changes to the rest of it. Financial support would be available through to the new owners through the council's heritage fund, and the property's worth about $3 million. So just three days before the October 18 blaze blew smoke across central Palmas North last year, police wrote to the council with concerns about antisocial behaviour and the dilapidated buildings. So hopefully uh, the, we'll see something happening there, at least an announcement, and when it does, I'll bring that to you here on Property Matters. Another news, this headline by Sinead Gill says that the April opening looms for the Countdown supermarket on Pioneer Highway. So the roof was added in October to the to the building. I don't know if you've been past lately, but this from January the 12th says that construction sounds will soon be replaced with those of checkouts and busy shoppers with an opening date in sight for the long-anticipated supermarket. Countdown Director of Property, Matt Granger, said the large supermarket in Awapuni, Palmas North, is on track to be open by the end of April, though it is only stage one of the retail development. The supermarket is to be part of a larger $16 million retail complex of 14 to 21 commercial and retail spaces. The Countdown build will include a pharmacy, pickup services and a cafe and create up to 80 new jobs. Those of you may recall it's taken several years to get to this point. The site was first purchased by Progressive Enterprises in 2013, but the final construction design was only approved in February 2020 after years of contention. The vision for the supermarket was often at loggerheads with Palmas North City Council's urban planning rules. The two institutions battled it out in environmental court and came to agreement in 2016. And that wasn't actually the end of the roadblocks of the company. Additional consenting issues delayed the late 2020 construction date. But the Auckland film, uh, <laughs> Auckland firm, I should say, Watson Hughes Construction began construction in May 2021. Granger had previously told staff that the COVID-19 pandemic and August 2021 lockdown had caused a few delays, but everything is now on track. I must actually go for a bit of a drive-by. Now, if you thought that uh, your property's gone up a little bit in value, well, here's a story from overseas, uh, New York, in fact. Justin Timberlake and Jessica Biel have just sold their New York City penthouse for $29 million. So E! News has confirmed that the musician and his wife, Jessica Biel, have sold their New York City penthouse for $29 million. And according to online records, the couple first purchased the four-bedroom Tribeca Penthouse in 2017 for $20.2 million. 
So now the pair is able to walk away with a sizable profit, and the sale first confirmed by the Wall Street Journal. So imagine that property's gone up from twenty million to twenty nine million. It then goes on to talk about um, the special features of the property, including top notch security, of course. Uh, and then, then share many amenities like a pool roof deck, city views, and concierge services. But uh, that's quite a quite a profit for four years, nine million dollars. Crazy stuff. So we're going to have a little break now. Listen to a bit of music. I have uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips with Landlord. Yeah. <laughs> 
listening to Coffee Matters here on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio. Te reo irarangi o na tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having your company. That was Gladys Knight and the Pips with the song Landlord. And speaking of landlord, we'll go back to some of the news. This more on a national level. State home landlord charges tenants $35 million to repair property damage. This was on Stuff by Aaron Lehman. This is quite amazing. The country's state housing landlord admits it doesn't keep records on damage done by tenants to its homes. And while Kainga Ora has charged tenants $35.3 million for property damage over the past five years, it can't say how much has actually been paid back. It's a heck of a lot of damage. The incomplete picture was provided to staff by the State Housing Agency under the Official Information Act. Records show Kainga has charged tenants a bit over $35 million over the past five financial years for property damage they accept they have caused, including $5.8 million during 2021. However, Kainga Government Relations Manager Rachel Kelly couldn't detail the total cost of property damage caused by tenants, saying the agency, and it's got a quote, does not hold data on damage done by tenants to our homes. And Kainga Ora also couldn't identify how much money has actually been paid back by tenants. Kelly said in her official information response, over the past few years, Kainga Ora has written off historical damage debt that tenants have not paid back. And our systems, this debt is marked as repaid, which makes it difficult to determine the total amount of debt that has been paid. Makes you wonder if anyone's actually paying anything. I'd certainly like to think so, but just the idea that if you don't pay it gets wiped is a, is a bit of a concern when it comes to responsibility for actions. National Party MP and housing spokeswoman Nicola Willis said it's disappointing the government landlord can't answer simple questions about damage to its state houses. Only by tracking such issues can the government hope to stay on top of it. She says taxpayers have the right to expect that Kainga Ora know how many state houses have been damaged by tenants and at what cost. She says it's fairly basic information. Not being able to provide it seems sloppy and at best, or sloppy at best and evasive at worst. So it's a pretty amazing uh, article to have a read of, and it's interesting that uh, you know you you would have to to wonder. Um, I know it's a it's a mandate to look after people and provide housing for them in the in the social uh, system, but surely the demand is so strong that people who are causing damage and continue to do so could be moved down the list compared to people that don't have a history of doing so. It seems fairly logical uh, to me. Now during the during January, and I'm just leafing through various bits of paper. There were a number of issues relating to the company called Batch Care. And these started in, well, I think it was even pre, pre-New Year. I've got a few of the articles here. One of the headlines says, Frustrated guests break into Batch Care holiday homes because the holiday uh, Batch Care customers had, had to, or have resorted to, I should say, breaking into holiday homes after a technical glitch left them unable to get into their accommodation over the Christmas period. Imagine that. The holiday rental company has been criticised after some customers received incorrect or no access information for the accommodation, leaving them stranded. Then a later article says, Flooded apartments and abandoned holidays. Batch care complaints continue to stream in. 
And again, in this article, it says the summer of discontent drags on for batch care customers with more reports of guests being locked out, cut off and fed up. The holiday rental company came under fire after some customers received incorrect or no access information for the accommodation. They were stranded and unable to reach Batch Care's customer service team. And uh, Batch Care blamed a, a technical glitch, but there were certainly a lot of people who were very uh, unhappy, and even cons- also with uh, complaints and uh, leaking pipes and these sorts of things, um, even where the after-hours number was unanswered. So they got some pretty bad coverage in the media there. And even uh, as recently as a couple of days ago, um, there's an article here that says Access Complaints, latest chapter in Batch Care's checkered history. So it says that the string of complaints from the disgruntled customers this summer are the latest in a series of problems for the holiday rental company Batch Care. The business, again, was criticised as we talked about over the Christmas break. As well as ongoing reports of access problems, other customers complain of overgrown, dirty or poorly equipped properties, some with no hot water or gas for cooking. Earlier this month, Consumer New Zealand spokeswoman Gemma Rasmussen said guests who decided not to go to their accommodation because of lack of communication from batch care would be entitled to a refund under the Consumer Guarantees Act. But this isn't actually the first time that batch care has come under scrutiny. The company's been the subject of two investigations by the Commerce Commission in the past four years. Founded by Leslie Preston in 2003, Batchcare was New Zealand's first full-service holiday rental provider, offering a booking service, cleaning and guest management. By 2018, it had nearly 2,000 holiday homes across the country on its books, annual customers in excess of 135,000, and a revenue growth of 35% year-on-year, Preston said at the time. The biggest challenge was finding people around the country to take on the management of the properties, she said. It's been a challenging road to get to the size and scale we have now, years and years of hard work, blood, sweat and tears. In 2016, the British holiday rental firm Sykes Holiday Cottages invested an undisclosed sum into batch care. The move was said to give batch care access to the technology, tools, people and insights of Sykes, one of Britain's largest independent holiday rental agencies with almost 14,000 properties across Britain and Ireland. Then Sykes was sold three years later in a deal reportedly worth £375 million, that's about three quarters of a million New Zealand dollars, so bigger pardon, three quarters of a billion New Zealand dollars with private equity firm Vitruvian Partners taking majority stake in the business. Around that time, Batchcare began to run into trouble. In 2019, it was fined 117000 for misleading consumers by editing and in some cases not publishing online reviews. Batchgear pleaded guilty to two charges under the Fair Trading Act after an investigation by the Commerce Commission. The Commission said that between June 2017 and September 2018, the company had edited customer reviews and removed negative comments about the properties listed on its website and its management and maintenance out of the properties. In fact, reviews with less than 3.5 out of 5 star rating were not published at all. So Batchgear had misled consumers by artificially creating positive impressions about some properties and its services. So a little bit of a slightly checkered past there as well. And uh, we'll just have to see what happens for those people and hopefully Batchcare can fix up whatever those problems are uh, for its customers. Another news, uh, David Seymour, this talking about the housing market and the difficulty in lending. 
David Seymour calls for inquiry into unintended consequences of loan law changes. Act leader David Seymour has called for an inquiry into how new laws supposed to protect vulnerable borrowers from unscrupulous lower-tier lenders came to disrupt bank lending. The changes to the Credit, Contracts and Consumer Finance Act came into force on December 1st, increasing the penalties for irresponsible lending and requiring lenders to go deeper dives or do deeper dives into the borrower's finances before granting them loans. But critics allege they've driven up lending costs, increased the administrative burden for lenders, borrowers and mortgage brokers and made it harder for ordinary people to get loans. A parliament that seeks to be a good lawmaker should not allow such laws to stand, Seymour wrote in a letter to Commerce and Consumer Affairs Minister David Clark and MP Duncan Webb, the chair of the parliament's Finance and Expenditure Select Committee. The unintended consequences have proven much worse and much uh, much uh, more pernicious, he says, than anyone contemplated. One of the critical things for a government is to ensure the financing market operates properly and what we've ended up doing is swinging to the opposite side of the line. Mortgage advisor Samuel Eva has found himself priced out of the market after selling his home, but a successful auction has finally swung his way. And he says, I think we've got a real issue with this, he says, it will need a change. The data from Credit Bureau's Bank's Reserve Bank covering the market since December to, uh, September the 1st has yet to be published to indicate the scale of the impact of the law changes. But if they turn out to be as significant as critics claim, MPs shouldn't be surprised because they were warned by ANZ Chief Executive Antonio Watson on June 2019 during a public consultation on the proposed law. So this is uh, something which has made it very hard for lenders now to, to borrow and uh, mortgages um, are way down on in terms of numbers and, and that compared to what there has been. So this could actually affect house prices, of course, if there are people that are no longer able to lend. And for many people, that situation changed very quickly indeed. But if you are looking to lend to borrow, good luck to you. Uh, it's certainly not as easy as it used to be. And that's all we have time for this week. And it's been wonderful having your company here on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. You can find this show on npr.nz, Manawatu People's Radio, or where all good podcasts are found. Talk again next week. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.